Welcome back to We Are Already Free, a podcast helping down-to-earth seekers and free people to live their truth and be the change. If you're done with doom-scrolling, hoping the broken consciousness which runs society will fix it, if you're ready to live a beautiful life with the people you love, then this podcast is for you. In today's episode, have you ever felt overwhelmed by how complicated living a life of vibrant health seems? Always another diet fad, another bit of news about how bad fat is, then how good it is, and so on. Well, you're in the right place, because today's guest, Dr. Gary Schliffer, has simple solutions which will help you to align with your ancestry and up-level your lifestyle. Dr. Schliffer is a board-certified internal medicine physician specializing in preventative care, nutrition, metabolism, and anti-aging medicine. He brings his robust experience with hospital inpatient medicine to his outpatient primary care practice in order to help prevent and cure disease for his patients. He's the founder of Evolve Healthcare in Los Angeles, a multi-specialty integrative medicine clinic focused on disease prevention and lifestyle optimization. He's also co-founder of Sapien, an organization focused on promoting health education and advancing health information technology. After immigrating from Russia with his family at age three, Dr. Schliffer grew up in the San Fernando Valley where he returned after his medical training to build his practice. Through his companies and community outreach, the doctor works to promote his message of healthy living, eating and lifestyle practices. In this far-ranging conversation, we cover everything from the mistake of asking too many questions as a doctor, who would have thought that was a problem, to how our ancestry is a great place to look for the answers to our health needs and challenges, to how important it is that we talk about face and embrace death to truly live and much more. I just want to say that Dr. Gary really thought that by us speaking about death at some point in this episode, that people would not listen to it. And I have so much more faith in you, dear listener, because I know that you are the kind of person who is wanting to meet this life fully. You want to really embrace the holistic experience of what it means to be a being living. And death is a part of that. So we don't go, we go quite into it because he has a lot of really quite amazing experience and speaks beautifully about it. So I hope that you will stay through that, even if it's a bit uncomfortable at times. Really, really do invite you to give this episode the full attention and love and to let Dr. Gary know that he's not right, that actually lots of people are in for the fullness of life, which includes death. Towards the end, Dr. Gary answers the question I ask in every episode about what we are already free means to him, and he answers it in a way that I found especially inspiring, hopeful, and empowering. So I really do look out for that point, as I said, near the end. It's freaking awesome. I'm Nathan Maingard, and as a highly sensitive person in a very insensitive society, I was nearly crushed by my efforts to fit a mold that that society just calls being a good citizen. Having navigated my own healing of depression, burnout, suicidal ideation, and other wonderful things like that, it's my honor to help others like me to bloom into the unique beauty they came here to bring. I share breathwork, empowering songs, stories, and poems, inner life skills coaching, and of course, ice baths. Sorry, I know I've been talking about them a lot recently, but seriously, they are freaking epic. 
Anyway, enjoy this episode with Dr. Gary. And if you enjoy it, uh, please do share, support, review, and let me know. There are so many wonderful people listening, but I don't know who you are until you reach out. I'd love the gift of knowing you more deeply. You can message me on Instagram or Telegram. The links are always in the show notes at alreadyfree.me forward slash 018 to get specific show notes for this episode. Uh, Speaking of which, just about everything we chat about in this episode is easily discoverable at that link in the show notes, alreadyfree.me forward slash 018. And now let's just take a few breaths together just to connect in as we begin. So taking a beautiful breath, letting go, another breath. Release. One more breath. (sighs) Let it go. Hope you enjoy. Thank you for being here. So I'm I'm super I'm super curious around because because you're like a proper and I say proper as someone who's a complete layman in these terms, but you're like a medical professional. Like you're a legit dude in that world. What has it been like being a medical professional who? has been kind of aware or awake within the wildness that's unfolded over the last few years? Yeah, the last few years have been something I did not expect. Just since the beginning of my training, since medical school and I did internal medicine residency, um, I was always sort of the weird guy. I I got voted the most uh, likely to complain at the end of my residency. And I, it was a joke thing. But I got upset and I was like, I don't I don't complain. I, I, I'm, I, I literally we were doing little like talks and I said, but I don't complain. I've never complained about be, having to be at work for 35 hours. I never complained about doing all my work. All my work is always done. I've done a great job uh, teaching my residents when I was a senior resident. So what exactly am I most likely to complain about? And then there's a lot of chatter and it. It was really basically that I never agreed with what the attending physicians wanted to do with the patients. I was always questioning why we were using a certain treatment or why we were taking a certain approach with care. And they called that complaining, which is, mm, I don't think that's the right word. I still take it personally to this day because I was just... I was being a scientist. I was asking why. I wanted to understand. If you give me a protocol, you do A, B, C, D, do these drugs, then test this, then do that. Well, tell me why. And just throwing a study at me. And then when I ask you, well, this study is not really a good study to then base this whole treatment protocol off of. And then look at me like I'm crazy because I'm I'm, uh, challenging the research. So for me... It's, it's been my entire career where I felt like I was thinking differently than my colleagues. Once I started practice, it became abundantly clear that the hospital system was not for me because that was shut up and do what you're told. And when you don't agree, do not say anything that is not your job. You are being paid to do this job. And that is not to ask questions. Um, so they gave me a, a most likely to complain award basically by uh, by saying that, hey, well, you're so efficient with your work. We're going to give you more work. And I said, but then you're going to pay me more, correct? Because if you're going to give me more work than my fellow hospitalists, then I should probably be paid accordingly. And they said, that's not how this job works. And that was the end of my 
my my career at, at the hospital. I am still an independent hospitalist. I just don't spend time in the hospital anymore. I was able to get my own practice rights uh, separate from the group. I did that for about a year as I would transition into my private practice. Um, for those listening, I have a company called Evolve Healthcare in Los Angeles. And it's just a primary care practice. At least that's how I think of it. But it's become a little bit of a safe haven for those looking for an alternative perspective. Um, and uh, and also uh, a physician and, and my providers are still in line with Western medicine thought. I still think it's very important to embrace all the good that Western medicine and traditional medicine provides us. But, you know, uh, you you got to keep questioning. You've got to keep taking a personalized approach. And that, and that means a lot of different things. It doesn't just mean one kind of alternative treatment. Oh, I do IV therapy. That makes me an alternative. It's not quite that simple. It's really, I I just try to, I just try to be open-minded. And so, yeah, during COVID, it was quite shocking uh, to say the least. Um, I early on adopted the FLCCC protocol, which is the frontline critical uh, care COVID-19 organization, something like that, FLCCC. Uh, That was popularized by Dr. Peter McCullough and a number of other scientists, um, you know, most famously on Joe Rogan, but now really on even on mainstream media, they get attention, where basically they said that, hey, there are treatments for COVID. We have these older drugs, things like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. We have supplements uh, that are treatment options. So I embrace that um, at no point, and I still am not uh, against or pro uh other treatment options. I won't say what they are, but there's other things. So it's about using all of the tools at our disposal. And that's what I did. And that's what I continue to do. Well, you you said something there just straight off around the most likely to complain, which really I'm grateful for that story because... My, I didn't go to university or anything. I, I finished high school and I was, I was my, my most consistent comment on my report cards was always Nathan is like massively talented, but he just needs to apply himself. But, but the, aside from all of that, the, the thing that I kept getting in trouble for at school was that I asked too many questions. I asked the wrong kind of questions. Like the teachers would say, so this is the thing you need to know. This is how it is. And I'd be like, but what about, I don't understand. And I would keep asking until they gave me detention. And I, so hearing you say that at like that high level, it's so interesting that that kind of mentality carries over from the school into the hospital where they're like, don't ask questions, man. Like that's no, that's not what we pay you for, which just seems completely backwards. I mean, I think science has a little bit stalled in many ways. You know, we're talking about nutrition and health. I was just watching a fun documentary on Netflix about uh, archaeology. And uh, it was Graham Hancock. And he's talking about alternative theories about, you know, the history of human civilization. And it's very close to me because a lot of what I do in medicine, I I look to our ancestry, I look to our past, I'm part of this ancestral health movement where I don't need a study from the last hundred years since we developed you know, evidence-based medicine protocols. I don't need that to guide every step of the way. I, that is just yet another tool. 
I have great studies that will tell me to use this drug or not use that drug or use this strategy and not use that strategy. That's all well and good, but I don't like live my entire career by the word of what was discovered in the last hundred years because there's hundreds of thousands of years of human knowledge to to pull from when we think about how we should eat or how we should move, how we should sleep. You know, there's that that's what I use as my guiding light. So my point to this is even in the world of archaeology, which isn't, in my opinion, like a sexy part of science, right? But even there, you can't really uh, step outside of what has already been accepted. And these are concepts that have been accepted only over the last, again, 50 to 80 years. They've created these concepts about Egypt and about the history of man and yada, yada, yada. And moving the chain has so difficult. Maybe it's always been like that. You know, when someone said the world is round, I forget, but someone said the world is round and everyone thought the world was flat and that person was ostracized until, you know, until the truth came to be. So maybe it's always been like that. People with new ideas and people thinking outside the box have a tough go at, at you know, hearing their message being heard. Um, but certainly, certainly in medicine and healthcare. There is a huge, huge wall up against anything that is outside of what is generally accepted. And my biggest issue with that, I get it. People believe what they believe. They're trained the way they're trained. My biggest issue with that is especially over the last 20 to 30 years, healthcare has been dominated by the food and drug industry. This to me is unacceptable. So if you create a barrier of information that requires so many millions of dollars that only drug companies can really afford to do the studies. And then you tell me, hey, if you want to do this, if you want to recommend this, you have to show me a double-blind placebo-controlled study. And I'm like, so in order to do anything new and to get support, I need the funding of multi-millions of dollars to do these extensive studies that's the only way i'm going to prove to you that what i'm suggesting that so that that basically means unless some big corporate financial institution is interested in what i'm saying that you're not going to listen to me you know and and i think not a conspiracy theory not a weird thing to say everyone knows it uh dr abrams uh, wrote a great book called sickening uh, that I just finished reading. It's very, very upsetting because he just tells the story of what happened with the drug company influence on medicine. And and the truth is, it's really been since the late 90s, early 2000s, which is right when I, as a young man, got interested in medicine. So between the time that I you know, finished my uh, college experience and became a doctor, medicine was even more so taken over by these giant or companies. And now all I do is try to provide support and counseling to patients that are extremely frustrated by the outcome of that, uh, by very, very close-minded physicians and providers that will not accept anything other than the standard American SAD diet or will not accept that maybe we should reinterpret cholesterol understanding since that information is probably it's not even, again, a conspiracy. It's probably pretty obvious to most people that the way we manage cholesterol in America is just crazy and silly and just makes drug companies monies. 
Um, you know, reimagining the idea of type two, di- type two diabetes as being a reversible medical condition. I get, I just, I mean, I was done training 10 years ago. They were still saying that it's irreversible. What are you talking about? So much evidence. So it's an overwhelming, you don't have to even go digging really. It's obvious that you can reverse type two diabetes. It's, this should be on the front line of every major news outlet so that people are less afraid when they get that diagnosis and understand that there's a way out of it. Um, You know, mental health, I don't know. It's just, it's all a mess. And my whole approach is like, I'm going to use common sense because it's not so common anymore. And with my, my background, my medical experience, my interpersonal experiences, I do think my strength is I have good common sense with the individual, meaning that I can sit down in front of a patient or a group of patients and think of what is a good next strategy for them. And sometimes that's all you need. You don't need a plan A to Z. Sometimes you're just meeting someone where they're at and you're figuring out what is their best next step. And that's all you need is to get the ball rolling and someone could go down a healthcare journey that can change their life. I see it happen all the time. And why, why don't any of my colleagues, and I had to say it, but so many of my colleagues, they don't even want to suggest something. It's it's protocol. It's automated what they do. And that's not fair. It's not fair to patients because people want to people get healthy. They don't want to just stay sick. And, and sadly, that's all most of medicine is about, is maintaining a certain level of disease that continues a system that is very, very lucrative. Yeah, well said. Well said on every level. I There's so many things you've said there that we could like deep dive into. I Because I'm thinking like if anyone's listening to this with type 2 diabetes, that's a massive thing to hear. It's like, but I, I mean, so, so here's the thing. I I, what's that? I said, that's why I said it. If you're listening yeah. and you have type 2 diabetes, this is, I didn't say that, you know, to sound cool. I said it because there is, you can fix it. You can get off drugs. You know, in, in my small community of the low carb world, kind of animal based eating, ancestral health, whatever you want to call it, it happens all the time. It's a common story. In my clinic, it's a common story. So, yeah, if you're listening, you can change that part of your life. It, it just changes, it requires a dramatic lifestyle change. No big deal. Let's no do big it. deal. Well, do you have, so, so I know this can be hard because like everyone's got their own thing they're going through, their own body, their own story, history, et cetera. But I'm wondering if you had to give like an umbrella statement or, a, or an elevator pitch for like, what's one thing that generally for most people who are kind of going through something would help? Is, is there something that you would recommend to like many people? <laughs> Great question. Haven't had that one before. I think at least what strikes me, because we're talking about many people, which means this could be people dealing with weight issues or metabolic issues, it's people dealing with mental health issues, or people just dealing with some weird gut issue and they can't figure it out, right? right. So all comers and all ages. I love that. Here's the one thing I think that is super under-discussed or underappreciated. If you want to see improvement, You do not seek comfort. You seek discomfort. You seek challenge. Most of the 
recommendations that I get from lifestyle medicine will make you uncomfortable before you feel better. And we live in a society where it's all comfort seeking. You know, like uh, I always give this example. If, if you're feeling chronic stress, if you're feeling pressure from life, uh, and 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 that manifests as mental health issues or poor eating habits, not exercising, whatever, right? If you're feeling that pressure, and that pressure could be work, and it could be money problems, and it could be the you know the news or the traffic, whatever, right? The way you feel better is not by going on vacation and resting on sitting on a beach. That never works. Everyone has tried it. You go and you rest for a week or whatever, and you get one nasty email or you get one bad you know, piece of news, and you're right back to where you started. So it doesn't really do anything. It just gives you a break, and a break is important, but it doesn't make you long-term more capable of dealing with all the bad things in our lives. So how do you do that is you do acute stressors. You do things that are acutely challenging and as you, and, but you can control them, which is important because then you can give yourself as much of that challenge as you can. And then you become better. You become more resilient. That's the word that we like to use in, in the space is you become more resilient against these challenges. So I'm a big proponent of things like intermittent fasting, um, heat, heat and cold therapy, uh, deep breathing strategies, um, obviously high intensity interval training, um, but, but also just like working out to discomfort. You know, it doesn't have to be intervals. You can just push past the comfortable brisk walk and, and make yourself uncomfortable and, and understand that you have to sweat to feel good you later and it doesn't feel good now. Um, you know, going in the sauna is a big thing that I, I really like to talk about because I just think it's so easy and people are starting to hear that message. Uh, so go in the sauna and stay five minutes past your comfort point. That's where you're going to make that resilience. You're going to change your body's hormones and you're going to release all of these uh, heat shock proteins that will make you stronger and more capable of dealing with challenges. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's if I had to say one thing, it's stop seeking comfort and start seeking discomfort in interesting ways, uh, specifically in ways that mimic our ancestry, because that's really what it's about is you are an organism that has been around for hundreds of thousands of years. And over the last, we'll find out based on Graham Hancock, it might be 30, 40,000, 50,000 maybe years, we've been living this kind of weird lifestyle where we're sedentary, where, you know, we're agricultural, where, you know, living in big populations in small places. This is not what our biology is built for. Like we are, we're adapted to it and it's great for society and, and science and things, but on a on a physiological level, on a, on a level of our genes and what our genes have evolved for. We have evolved to live a very different life than we currently live. And so when you think about how do you feel better, you, you, I think the simplest way to think about it is how do I reconnect with my hunter-gatherer roots? Uh, how do I reconnect with what my biology, what my physiology, what my neurochemistry is asking for? And what it's asking for is to get into a really cold, uncomfortable lake to get that that fish or do whatever I have to do and then get out and warm up. And that discomfort is what we are built for. Like literally 
on every level, on a cellular level, we are built to get uncomfortable and survive and push through it. And when you don't challenge your body, it gets flabby. Your your neurological system becomes sensitized or desensitized and dysregulated. Hormones get dysregulated. Gut microbiome falls apart. And, you know, all of the things I just mentioned are little sexy things that people talk about in the health space, but it's all one thing. It's us living a life that is not consistent with our biology. And that's a critical thing for people to understand because there's never going to be a, a study that's double-blind placebo-controlled to explain this. It's, it's a concept. It's a very much an understanding of what it means to be a human being. Man, I, I loved every single word that you just said, because I have been just, especially over the last few months, I mean, I've been on and off over for some years now, but really the last few months I have been deeply dedicated to my practice of cold immersion and breath work and kettlebells. I've, I got into kettlebells for the first time, like so intense weight training that that is very active and and it it it's addictive, man. And it is. I was. It was un, very unpleasant at first, <laughs> and it's still unpleasant. Like every time, I, every single time I stand next to that ice bath, there's a very large part of my brain that's like, "Don't fucking do this. Do do not get in that water." Yeah. And then every time I do, I'm like, "Thank God that I did that." It's the most amazing feeling. So I love how you've connected that in. You've given me a little more insight into like why is it so important that I'm doing this like I know how good it feels and I know all the physio I've read all the things are physiological but like actually it's because I'm a freaking hunter gatherer and I need to get uncomfortable to get comfortable and it's as simple as that it's it's that simple I mean and and there's you know with the ice bath it's really fun because there's all of those physiological changes that we know about um, that I'm, you know, you can find gurus to talk about that. He's probably had people on talking about it, but I actually think that the, the psychological part of it is the most important. And it's why I mess with people and push them to do it. And when I say mess with people, like people in my personal life, cause you know, <laughs> my wife doesn't want to get into a cold and cold bath. Like no one wants to do that. I get it. But when they do, you see such a powerful response yeah. And the interesting part is what you were saying. It never extinguishes. You never are like excited to jump in the cold. Like your, your, your primitive brain is always like, no, 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 that's not, don't do that. <laughs> and that's overcoming that hurdle, I think is, is one of the most powerful things here because when something really bad happens in life, life is tough. People die, people get sick, terrible things happen in society that you have no control over. How are you going to deal with that challenge? Well, if you can't get over yourself and jump in the cold plunge because your your brain's telling you not, then how are you going to get over the thing that you can't control, that you can't say, no, I'm not going to get in. So you got to learn what it means to do something you don't want to do and realize like the power of doing that. And with cold plunge, it's great because the outcome is always good. You always feel good later. You know, so so it's never going to be, oh, that was terrible. It's not going to be terrible. You're going to feel great. Everyone feels great getting out of that cold plunge. It really does. And it's if you haven't tried it and you're listening, go and do it. But it's the brain. It's the trick that you play on your brain that makes you stronger later when, when the things happen that you can't control. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's actually giving me a so, – so one of my – so there's a few pieces here, and I'll I'll just throw it all out there and see see what lands and what reflects. But um, 
So like my thing was my trauma, whatever, as a child, the stuff I went through gave me the sense of not enoughness. And so this sense of fragility of, of like I've been a victim and that's the story I carried for a really long time. And so I avoided discomfort. I was like, well, I'm just going to lie in bed and watch Netflix or read a book as much as possible and, and do as little else as possible. And, and, that, and that was, you know, then my physiology started to match that. My chemistry started to match that. And I went through some severe stuff because of that. Um, so now it's this thing of having really starting to get comfortable with discomfort and, and choosing discomfort as a practice. And the way that I think about it now is like, I choose to do hard things. So when the hard things that I don't have a choice about come along, I can handle them better. It's like, do the hard things you don't have to do so that you can do the hard things that you don't have a choice about, basically. <laughs> That's it. Build your resiliency and everyone can benefit from that. Every single human in modern society. Yeah, it's, we've been sold such a... And I mean, I understand it. It's the sense of like, oh, we just want to keep making things easier. And I, and I wonder if humans will ever develop the sense that for every new convenience, if we before we take on the convenience, we deeply consider the cost, the projected cost of that convenience. What do I have to give up for this new thing that's going to make something much easier? What is that going to cost me uh, at what levels and am I willing to pay that price in the, like processed food I mean obviously we could go deep down that rabbit hole around you know people say oh you need to eat less butter and less fat because you're gonna have a heart attack or something and it's like the, as as low fat came in so heart disease also like accelerated at the same time uh, anyway that's a, you're welcome to dive into that as much as you feel <laughs> yeah I mean that's really how I came into sort of ancestral space of, of my, my story was basically that I always, I, I, when I started medical school and residency, I told myself I would not get heavy and depressed and unhappy because that's what I knew happens to so many uh, young, young people that go into it. And, and so I worked out very, very hard almost every single day through medical school and residency. I, I just ran and lifted and did all the stuff. And that's how I was like keeping sane basically. Um, because it was a very challenging experience uh, for internal medicine residency. And at the end of it, what I realized was if I stopped doing my runs and my lifting and, and all the things I was doing physically, I would start gaining weight. And I said, hold on, I'm in phenomenal shape right now. Why am I gaining weight as soon as I stop running? Well, I was still eating a standard American diet. My knowledge of nutrition was the same as every doctor, which is the same as the lay person walking down the street. I hope everyone realizes that the doctor's knowledge of nutrition in America, again, I'm in America, but uh, is the same as the person, the average person walking down the street. So when you go to your doctor and you ask, hey, doc, what should I eat? You're asking the wrong person. They don't know. They don't know. We're not trained in that. So that started a journey uh, triggered by an argument I had with Brian. Brian was discovering nutrition and he's a smart uh, engineer who I was respected intellectually. And we just basically got in an argument. We went snowboarding one day and the argument led to me going, oh, I should probably read this book, The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Teicholz. This is probably something worth reading. And that was my first book. And it led me down the path of like, oh, man. I was trained to be a drug dealer and I were not trained to make people healthy. And, uh, 
you know, it all started unraveling for me. And and nutrition to me is the anchor point of health. It's the number one thing you could do all. Like I said, I was doing all the things and I still was gaining weight when I wasn't doing all the things. And again, it's unrealistic to train two hours every single day, seven days a week. And that's literally what I was doing for my mental health and my physical health. Um, But that shouldn't be the requirement. That's not consistent either with a hunter gatherer's life. We didn't. It was not part of that. Anyway, you get it. So mm, that's where I changed and, and sort of developed the concept of the sapien diet with Brian, which is basically just a very inclusive term that includes everything from vegetarian to carnivore. Uh, it doesn't include a veganism because vegan is not a diet compatible with human life. Um, that's the truth for whatever, for those that want to do it, I support them and I help them guide them through it. Um, but it's not something I recommend, but sapien diet encourages, uh, high protein. It, encur- it encourages embracing fat. So we make that distinction because you don't need to over consume fat. You just need to embrace it as a critical component of your life. Uh, and then, uh, which obviously whole foods. So avoiding the processed foods, and then intermittent fasting. Uh, and I still think intermittent fasting is one of the most powerful interventions that anyone can can do. And you can start that today if you haven't started. It's very simple. Um, but oh, oh, you can learn how to really leverage that strategy to make you uh, have a better metabolism, better cognitive health, um, even better hormonal system because um, you can leverage the fasting to improve your hormones. So yeah, um, that's sort of the concept I, I now uh, really promote uh, with my patients. And I have a podcast where I really just talk about food uh, because I think it's that important. Cool. What's the name of your podcast? It's Sapien Podcast. And I co-host it with Brian Sanders. It's been a while since we got a lot of episodes. Um, really, really uh, over the last year, my practice has grown dramatically and I've been really struggling to maintain this social media space uh, and keep room for it. Um, but that's my intention. I think I, my dream is to build myself as a physician and provider, get more and more reps. Cause every year I do this, I'm seeing 10,000 patients more, you know, I see a lot of patients. So my whole thing is sure. I could have discovered carnivore and hit the social media thing hard and opened a supplement company and become one of these guys you know, we all know who I'm talking about and they all got popular and then they like saw patients for $800 a visit, even though they never practiced medicine or they did practice medicine in a different field unrelated to this. My feeling is like, I'm lucky enough that I'm very early in my career and I want to get the reps. I want to see as many humans as possible. I want to, I deal with everything from healthy 18 year olds that come to my practice that found me on the podcast to about 51% of my practice is hospice. I do a lot of end of life care. I think it's extremely important and under, under provided essentially in, in America. And so I found a niche there and then my preventative care. So I basically do before you get really sick and trying to keep you from getting sick and reversing disease. And then I do the end of life where the disease processes have come to an end point and I guide them through the transition. Um, and I think that those two are the two least desirable by future doctors. They're the two least, uh, they're the two most needed. So we need 
primary care physicians and we need geriatricians and hospice care physicians. Uh, and we don't have enough emphasis on it because both sides of the coin that I'm talking about are lifestyle medicine practices. I am not doing procedures and I am not prescribing expensive drugs. So the pharmaceutical industry that drives healthcare is not promoting anything in that space. They try to create drugs to fix Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease, in my opinion, started when they were kids and they were started to be introduced to toxic foods and all of the whatever. We, that's a whole conversation. But my point is, I am in a way a lifestyle medicine physician. I teach people how to prevent disease and heal from disease. And then I tra help people transition into the end of their life. And I think that is a very important work. I hope to continue to do it as long as I can. And then what I've learned, I hope to share with the community coming from a place of not just book knowledge or research studies or my own personal journey, but rather from hundreds of thousands of human lives and learning from those lives and learning from going through the pandemic and now out of the pandemic and dealing with the mental health pandemic, which we are certainly in. So that's kind of like what drives me, you know, I feel like there's a bigger mission in the future of teaching people this stuff. And I think it'll resonate even more when I have even more reps. I've been doing this for 10 years now and I hope to do it for another 20. Um, but yeah, Eventually, I'd like to move into more of the social media space and and educate people on my experiences. When you say you you help people to transition, I mean, what what do you feel like your role is in that time when someone's at the end of their life for whatever reason? How do you support them through that? Yeah, so hospice is this really mysterious, mysterious part of medicine. Most people so. I'll put it this way. In the early 1900s, not a long time ago, 80% of people died in their homes. Okay? Whoa. Death was a part of everyone's life. Most people had seen a, a pet die or they lived close enough to like a an, uh, uh, a farmland or something they'd seen chickens they participated in butchering right like as as early as 100 years ago people were very much connected with the entire breadth of life whether that's human or animal life and since that time most people greater than 80 percent of people die in a hospital most people have not seen how a chicken goes from a running around chicken to a chicken breast on your plate. Most people haven't even seen their pet pass away because they go to the, you know, doggy hospital and get put down and all this stuff. We are disconnected, so disconnected from normal life that transitioning or dying is this like weird thing that no one's even fathom then it becomes very scary that someone's dying in front of you everyone dies every animal died before it hit your plate that doesn't mean you don't eat animals it means you respect animals and learn about that process um, so i guide people mostly the families most patients at the end of life they get it like it's 
it's mostly the families that don't get it. So I, I, I guide people. I teach, I talk to them that I, I tell people to give their family members permission to transition. I guide people with the, what does the end of life look like? I give the patients permission to tell their families that they want to go. Weird stuff that people wouldn't think about. It's not like, oh, you're going to die. Let me hold your hand through it. It's, it's, that's not it. And by the way, there's amazing nurses in end of life that do that. And thank God for those people because they really do amazing work that is underappreciated. But my job is to be honest. Like so many doctors are not honest with their patients. And so many times I'm meeting a patient at hospice and they don't even understand like what is really happening because the doctors were very soft and they were not clear or they were not uh, transparent about what's really going on. So I guess often I'm the bearer of bad news, but most of that news is taken with gratitude because it's truth. And most people just want to hear the truth about what's going on. And sometimes they don't. And sometimes the family knows and the old grandma doesn't really want to talk about it. And so I support everyone through that game that they're playing. And that's okay because that's their choice. And someone at least knows what's going on. And I just make sure that there's no suffering, that there's no undue procedures and manipulations that cause suffering. So my goal is to make the transition of a human life to death uh, be dignified, be respected, be truthful, and I guide the whole team. So I, I will manage the, the nurses, the, the, the aides, the families, the patients, the facilities, whatever it is, um, by understanding all the components of it, um, I act as really like a kind of the quarterback for that experience. And I, I make sure everyone's in the right position so that, um, you know, bad things don't happen. And oftentimes bad things can happen at the end of life if people act irrationally or are not prepared for what's going on. Um, and so I take a lot of pride in that work. Um, it's very good work. It's very important work. And I don't talk about it that much because no one wants to talk about death. Even on these cool podcasts where people are very open-minded, no one wants to hear this conversation. They want to ignore death because what everyone's about living their best life, right? It all comes to an end and being lucid on what this life is about and, and how short it is, how finite it is, how unpredictable it is, that it gives me motivation every day to live my best life by living in a world of constant death. Death is not sad. Death is reality. Death is unavoidable. So rather than pretending it doesn't exist, we should be building a healthier relationship with death because, oh man, I can't really get into this pandemic stuff because we're going to get censored. But like one of my biggest gripes was a lot of the numbers and a lot of the reports of what's going on. It sounds scary and dramatic, but isn't even anything compared to what we deal with, with, for example, heart disease every year. Yeah. Right. Or, or the side effects of obesity, heart disease, stroke, uh, diabetes, right? The morbidity and mortality as a result of that process, which is a reversible, is a reversible and modifiable process. We just accept that morbidity and mortality, but what do we do? We ignore it. We normalize it, right? And then when we have some kind of infectious process, 
says, we fear mongering and we make it a bigger deal than it is. I'm not saying it wasn't a big deal. I'm saying our relationship with actually the healthcare system, the dying process, the living process, it's so far disconnected from what it really is that we're, we're, an opp- we're an opportunity to be manipulated mm. because we don't really think about all of the components. So they, 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 you know, whoever's interested is that really has the money to manipulate public ideas can go in and make something sound really scary or make something sound less scary. Because if we don't understand what's really going on, then we're, we're just an opportunity to be messed with. So, um, it was very weird. It's been a very weird few years for me, as you might imagine. Yeah, well, thank you so much for talking about death and for, for facing and meeting death. One of the, actually, My very first guest on this podcast was Tara Couture of Slowdown Farmstead, who I know you guys love know her. well and just, yeah, just so much love. And one of my favorite things, well, one of, not a, but a favorite thing about her is how real she is about death and how she meets it like so humbly and so holistically and with such just like realness where i mean she talked about in that episode where she's like when they do the harvest you know she's like it's not a happy day it's like we go everything's quiet it's somber it's intense and we you know there's big emotion but it is miraculous there is a sense of the magical of the beyond something that comes in that is just beyond what we kind of navigate in our everyday lives and and so i guess the question i would love to to hear your thoughts on is for those who are listening who might be going shit like I want to, I want to be more responsible around my death and around the death of the people I love, and like how to meet this, meet this more wholly with more of me. Do you have anything that you would say to someone who would like to kind of connect more with their death and with the death of those they love? <laughs> it's a tough one. Um, hmm. That's a really tough one. Uh, I think when it comes to human death, uh, it's very, very challenging and. If you're ever in a situation where a patient is in, you know, someone in your family is in a terminal situation, be very, very open-minded to home hospice. I think home hospice is uh, is something that the health industry is doing a good job with promoting because it allows people to have a more uh, civilized and dignified death at home with their family. A lot of families are still a little bit uh, think that it somehow expedites death. It doesn't. It actually extends life and extends quality of life for those in a terminal situation. So I would say be open-minded to the concept of hospice instead of uh, having this knee-jerk reaction that when someone says hospice, that it's bad. So I would say like that's a specific thing someone can do. But for the general person listening, um, go to a farm, go to a homestead and participate in the entire experience of procuring your animal. That's something I want to do more of. Something I, I just, Dr. Bill Schindler, I don't know if you, if you haven't had him on, he's an amazing guy. He's an archaeologist, anthropologist who has a sort of uh, an organization that teaches how to, it's called Modern Stone Age Kitchen. And they're in Maryland. I just visited them and he teaches butchering classes and how to make food. But but basically, my point is, if, if you have an opportunity, go see what it's like to take a chicken or a cow or a pig from a living, walking creature to uh, butchered and ready to be eaten. 
connect with your food. Uh, it's not a sad thing. It's a thing. It's somber. It's a thing that should require great respect and humility and attention. But it's not like, oh, poor chicken or cow. That's a very, very superficial and almost demeaning to the whole life cycle to do that. When someone's like, oh, the cow has like a face and they have children, it's like you're missing the reality of the world. This We are in a diverse ecosystem where there's predator and prey. And if you can't survive, you die. And, it, you know, dog eat dog, all these like sayings, right? But like embracing that and understanding that we are, we have evolved so far as a culture that we actually raise these animals to be food. And that's pretty weird if you really think about it. Yeah. So it's really weird to pretend that they're not going to die or that, or that they're not raised for food. To me, that's even more weird. So to go one step further, most of your listeners probably have embraced that part. Go and experience it. Experience taking the life of an animal. It shouldn't make you not eat animals or be afraid. It should make you be so grateful, so thankful every time you get to have a good meal. Just gratitude that something gave its life for you, that that's part of the life cycle, that you are an alpha predator on this planet and you were born as an alpha predator and you get to be that. And you get to be a grateful version of it, one that appreciates the entire, you know, crazy dynamic that put us here in this position. And I think that's a way to connect with death because it is actually all around us. It's just kind of mystified and hidden from us. I don't know why, honestly, um, but um, I, I think that that is very uh, grounding and uh, spiritually healthy. I recently had the opportunity to do just that. So I've I had already I'd slaughtered my own chickens in the past, and I've I've always felt very like one of the, I've never been one of those people who's like I could never kill my own animal. I'm like I'm sure I could kill my. I'm like uh, if the opportunity arises, I would love that. Would feel really honest to me. And so when it did arise, it was a friend a friend of mine locally who has got a small herd of a uh, small herd. Is it a herd of sheep? Anyway, a flock of sheep. And uh, and he said and and it was a friend's birthday. It was his 40th, I think, even and was like, okay, let's do this big occasion. So a group of us, a group of men actually got together and went to his went to his land and, and had the opportunity. And it was it was a very special thing to be a part of. It was it was so peaceful. It was like it was so calm. I don't know, man. It was amazing. And then we, yeah, we slaughtered it, butchered it, had it hanging off a tree and skin. It was an amazing, the bonding experience of all of us there together. And it was, a, it was a ride, man. It was, an, it was an experience. I definitely recommend something of that integrity for anyone who really wants to step into what that might feel like. It is, it's very empowering and it's very calming and it's very like, wow, this is what, this is real life. This is real life. Death is real life. Yeah. You know, um, I hate to say it. It's it's such a hard thing for people to listen to. So hopefully we didn't turn too many people off with this conversation. But it it's going to catch up to you. Everyone eventually gets to a place where their family member is sick, and and hopefully they have a good hospice physician involved so that um, people are honest with them. 
Yeah, my, and yeah, I, I hear you on that. I, it's given me a sense of also wanting to kind of think more about how do I want to go? Like, you know, if even if it happens when I'm young, if like I get injured or something, I kind of want to have a little more responsibility about how, what, what, you know, take the pressure off the people I love, be like, hey, this is how I want it to be. I think that would be a kind thing to do, actually. I, I kind of hearing you speak has given me that. Well, there's something called an advanced directive, and I encourage everyone to have one filled out and updated every couple of years. And that is a legal form that you outline your wishes. And in, in, see, as healthcare providers, especially people in the hospital, there's this joke, and it's a very private joke. So it's amongst ourselves. We would never say it to a patient or someone outside of it. But it's like, hey, I'm DNR, which is saying, like, do not resuscitate me or intubate me. Because we know that once you're critically injured and you're like on a ventilator and on tubes, your quality of life and the way you're treated is terrible. And so in, in healthcare, we're capable of maintaining and life, even if it's like by a thread for a very, very long time. And when you watch enough people spend 60 or 90 days on a ventilator in the ICU, uh, you know, poked and prodded and manipulated and falling apart only to pass away ultimately from an infection or whatever it is. And no one wants to let this person go, let them go. It, it's a very sensitive subject. So I'm not going to like put too much into this, but just understand that when you hear not letting them go or, or all of these things, what, what you realize as a healthcare provider that sees patient after patient after patient is that that is terrible. And we induce suffering by not being honest. We used to just say, no, this patient is passed. It's over. Now, if you did that, a family member could like challenge you in the court or in the hospital. It becomes this big mess. We don't know how to guide people in these situations. So back to my point is like as healthcare professionals, often that we're like, do not resuscitate me or innovate me. If it goes like that, it's like, let me go like nature, let nature play its course. So yeah, not saying that you should make yourself a DNR, but yes, everyone, especially if you're like over 50 and you're getting to the second half of your life, you should have that advanced directive because yes, if you don't have it and something really bad happens, the decision-making falls to your, uh, depends on what state you're in actually like in california it's the first of kin um, but it can be a very difficult situation when there's multiple people making decisions it can be extremely difficult when there's financial implications as you might imagine so i deal with that a lot as well uh, the the battles for that you know person's wealth so yeah i think uh I think everyone should have an advanced directive and it should just be updated and it should be the same as like maintaining your health insurance or maintaining your social security number and your postal code. Like it's just should be part of our lives, but like no one wants to talk about it. It's not really reimbursed by, by, by the healthcare system to get that paperwork completed. And it often doesn't happen until, you know, someone's really in a critical or in an end stage situation. And then it's sort of like, tears and stuff and i'm like this shouldn't be about tears this should be about what does this person want the end of their life to look like it's like not sad it's reality but we're not there yet as a society 
But this is such a, so I, I really appreciate that you're, you're here and talking about this. I mean, I, I actually, I'm still looking and you know, this is a great step in that direction, although I don't want to focus the entire conversation on this, but I, I want to have a, a death doula on and just spend the entire episode talking about death. Like, you know, the, I, I think that it is so underrepresented in our society. And I, to that point, I believe it's one of the core reasons that our society is is actually just like eating itself, destroying itself is because it has this obsession with immortality. So like we look at what's considered the best life you can have in our society. It's to accumulate as much stuff as possible. Why? Because surely if I accumulate enough stuff, I'll make enough of a mark that I will live on, that I can keep living, that I can keep this, this identity going. And even corporations or countries, or it's all this ego idea of keep expanding, keep growing forever inflation, like infinite inflation. Inflation on a finite planet seems really silly to me, but I think it's this obsession with life without acknowledging that all life is born of death and returns to death and that that's part of the cycle. Absolutely. Although if you have an episode where all you do is talk about death, no one's going to listen. I'm just, <laughs> you could ask your reader, your listeners and see if they'd really listen to that. But I'm telling you as, as great an idea as it sounds, I've yet to figure out a way to make it palatable to someone that's actually going to get excited about it. Interesting. Um, that's one of my goals. It's one of my goals. If I could, figure, I mean, I could make a, a conversation sound fun and I could do that with food pretty easily or lifestyle, but figuring out how to translate the message of death without making people just recoil and hit the off button, switch to the comedian podcast. I, I don't, you know, that's, that's a big challenge. And, uh, and I do think it's, you know, something we need to figure out because it's, it's something that will help a lot of folks. And maybe people that listening to your podcast that are more interested in uh, figuring out life and it's all of its tricks and intricacies and subtleties, maybe they'll be into it. And if you are, I'd be happy to come back and just really get into the death conversation because there's a lot of things that, that need to be said, um, but we don't need to, uh, belabor that today no. well thank you again and i you know if if anyone's listening right now and they're going man i would love to hear that conversation just like hit me up send me a dm send yeah. me something on instagram or an email or whatever like go to the show notes and uh and and click a link and let me know because yeah that's that's surprising to me and i very much bow to your because you're way more experienced in this like but that's i i i it's I guess it makes sense based on how our society is so terrified of death and how it is so pushed aside. I mean, I just on a kind of humorous level, I saw a, a Banksy. Do you know the artist Banksy, the street artist who, I mean, he became super yeah. famous. He is still very famous, but he he did like a pop-up exhibition in Bristol in the UK while I was just happened to be there and I got to go. And he had um, he had a fish tank with like animatronic little th fish swimming in it but the fish weren't fish they were literally like um, those deep fried like crumbed fish sticks that were like swimming in the water and, and he had he had like little chickens in nests but they weren't chickens they were drumsticks deep fried drumsticks that were like moving around and it's that idea of like people don't understand <laughs> that that thing that you think is fish that had a life that that had a whole experience of life that had to end for that to turn into this little thing that you just are so separate from. Uh, and I thought that was a powerful reminder. So I found that very funny. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, man. Well, let's take a, I just, I, I don't have too many more questions for you, but I, you, I see you speak about, you have this thing around men's health and helping men with their health. And so I kind of want to segue into this. I know it's like a big jump, but, um, 
basically around testosterone because I'm just starting to learn a bit more about this and realize that, holy shit, we have like a major testosterone problem in our society. And so there's a few questions I want, which I'll just ask as one and you can kind of go whatever direction, but but well, go to tell us a bit more about that, about testosterone, and then how can we naturally improve testosterone? And is that important for women as well as men, or is it specifically men who should be concerned about that? I think back to the beginning conversation is living a life that's so far disconnected from our biology and physiology ultimately causes hormone dysregulation. Um, that's for men and women. Um, I think it's, so that's for men and women speaking specifically about men. There's this whole like feminization of men or like vilification of toxic masculinity and all these trigger words. I think it's very, very, very short sighted. Men are men. They don't need to be toxic, but they need to be masculine. And masculine doesn't mean like it doesn't mean being brutish and mean like that's that's like a TV show. Thing. Yeah. Like in reality. And so it doesn't even mean anything about your sexuality for the record. You can be a very masculine bisexual or homeless. Like what you know what I'm saying? Like masculinity is a way you are using your body and brain to do the things that you are evolved to do. And, um, and that's a very deep conversation because we live a very bizarre life compared to an egalitarian hunter-gatherer society. Those societies used sex in a very different way than we do. It, it, and there's this great book called Sex at Dawn uh, by Chris Ryan that is just, if you haven't read it, and or if you did read it and you just thought it was about polyamory, go back and reread it because it's not. It's about hunter-gatherer mentality and how our bodies evolved to use sex as a form of communication and a way to control and help uh, mitigate, you know, dynamics in a relationship. And it's not just like for procreation or for a monogamous pair bond. So there's this deeper layer of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what sexuality is. But basically, when you take this modern society and say that being a man and being physical and, you know, working hard with your body and eating healthy animal-based foods and working hard, uh, and when you make that not the thing that a man does and instead you're sitting on the couch since you're 12 years old, you're not using your body, you're not eating healthy food, you're filling yourself full of weird fats that don't make healthy cholesterol and cholesterol is the foundation for testosterone and estrogen and vitamin D and thyroid hormone and skin and brain cells, you know, when you take all of these things out, you get a very, very sick society. And when it comes to men, you see declining, uh, uh, declining testosterone levels, like dramatically declining levels. I don't th think there's one thing. Behavior, right? Not using the body the way you're supposed to use the body, and you are supposed to use your body in a very, very specific physical ways. Uh, I think even the psycholo psychological part of it, not letting that masculine energy into your mind because somehow it's not like good or acceptable anymore. Uh, I think that's a bad idea as a society from a nutritional standpoint, uh, 
populating ourselves with garbage instead of real protein, real healthy fat, healthy saturated fat, healthy cholesterol, omega-3 rich foods, uh, lots of protein. If you're not doing that, you're going to have a sick man. And that's what we have. And we have men that are not tapped into what it is to be a man. And again, not talking about sexuality or position in the hierarchy of life, but like what it means to be physically a human man animal. And it really does mean something very specific. And so, yeah, I think like the further we get away from a 12 year old boy playing, you know, with his friends on the street, you know, throwing the football around or uh, playing with their bike or whatever. And if you're going to tell me that's a toxic thing, then you're out of your freaking mind. That's what little boys do. And unless we have little boys doing that, and if they're just sitting there with their headset on playing video games, you're going to still see a de degradation of what a man is. I think that's happening globally. That's not an American thing. That's a technological problem. That's a societal problem. That's a... It's it's probably unavoidable at this time, but it, but I think that that's really what's happening with men's health specifically, yeah, and um, it's very easy to fix. I think all the stuff we already talked about, uh, everything from like the nutrition changes to exercise to just going and having a physical experience with nature, uh, to uh, jumping in a cold tub or getting in a sauna, you know, challenging yourself, uh, doing a breath work. All that stuff plays a role. Um, but what we didn't talk about is just sitting in front of the TV and playing four hours of video games and thinking that that was a great way to spend your time. I'm sorry, it's not. I love video games and I know it's a whole community of people and those people should continue to play video games and do all the stuff they do, but they need to supplement their lives with some physical work and some of the stuff we're talking about here. Uh, so, you know, I don't want anyone to get upset. Oh, it's poo-pooing on video games and people spending time on the computer. No, do it, but supplement, make, do biohacks that mimic your ancestral origins so your body can still be happy while you're sitting there and doing what you have to do with the computer. So these are like not, I'm not like saying you don't, you know, part society is progressing the way it is fine. So we adapt, we adapt by doing these other things to compensate. It's not this or that it's this and that. And that's what I'm, that's what I would try to encourage men to do is, uh, you know, all the things we talk about, the diet, the physical work, the temperature regulation stuff, and really all that leads to healthy mental health. So, Yeah, I actually just just over a month ago, I started a men's circle locally just because I, I was like feeling that need for brotherhood. And and not only that, but I I mean, I, there's lots of different ways to circle up and I, and I love them all. I appreciate that when men, when people get together and in a circle, there's powerful things that happen. In my case, I was like, I just want to be more active with some dudes. Like, so I, I basically, what I do is I guide them through breath work, like powerful breath work and then get them in the ice bath and the, the sort of bonding experience of that. And then we share snacks after we share like our story, what that felt like and witnessing it's like, I feel like I'm in a circle of heroes, basically, because I've just witnessed each of those men face a really, and often it's their first time in an ice bath. So like face this part of themselves where when the one guy said when he got out, he's like, there was a moment there was like, I was just like a puppy dog. I just wanted with my tail between my legs. I just wanted to run. Like I didn't want to be there, but he stayed and he stayed in that discomfort and he transformed something in himself. And that to me as well, like there's something in that that feels deeply nourishing in me that I really appreciate. 
And that's what we're talking about and what's missing. And um, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. It just took a, a couple of bags of ice and a nice book and a dude sitting around. And, you know, and there's a version of this for women and there's a version of this where everyone comes together and, and it's intermingled. And that's what Brian's trying to do at the Sapien Center in Austin. And, and I think that, um, you know, if someone could walk away from this conversation with one message, it's that, you know, what is the unifying idea? It's tapping into our ancestry, ancestral health, divorcing ourselves from the uh, the imposing ideas of modern research and modern health knowledge, divorcing ourselves from those because they have been manipulated to the point where they are unreliable and uh, reconnecting with hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution and mimicking those behaviors uh, so as to unlock the full potential of our bodies and our minds and our spirits. And uh, I think that's the most important thing that guides what I do and that should guide everyone on their health journey. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's a beautiful insight. I love how, in a way, how simple it actually all is. I know it's not easy, but it's actually very straightforward. And and just a final question, which is, what when you hear we are already free, and what comes up for you? I think we are free to change. I think that um, so many people are stuck in the momentum of what they're currently going through. We're, you know, we can't control a lot about what's happening in our societies, whatever country we're in. And you just can't control, you know, what's happening. It's, it's, but, but you are free to change your thinking. You're free to change your habits and your behaviors. You're free to change how you perceive some of the stuff that's happening around you. So, you know, I remind, like, it's what I tell every patient, especially like after the first consult, I'm like, Today, you can walk out of this room and start these two things. Like I usually give like two challenges and they are free to make those changes. And those are always free changes. It's never like here's an expensive supplement or go get a membership to some expensive thing. It's always literally free stuff, right? So I guess there's a double meaning there. It's like you are free to change. And all the stuff that we just talked about, it's mostly free to do. So you can start doing that in the next hour. And no one can stop you because at least in America, it's a free country still for the most part. So do it, like do it. And then the next day, if that didn't, if what you tried the day before didn't work, you're free to change it again and keep changing it and keep listening to podcasts and reading books and learning more about what it is to be healthy and just keep changing. And I think that as soon as you get to a point where you're stuck and you're not changing, you're not evolving, you're going to see that you're not as happy. And I think that change over time is actually critical to happiness. Um, because if you're just stuck in one thing, it, it's not really, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense with a rapidly evolving world, you know? So keep changing, keep growing, keep adjusting and, and, and pursuing your best, you know, your best version of what you want life to look like. It's out there. And if anyone's wanting to find you now, where would be the best places to do so? Yeah, I'm most active on social media at, at my Instagram at drgaryevolve, at drgaryevolve, uh, Dr. Gary Evolve. 
Um, and then um, my company is called Evolve Healthcare. It's evolvehealthcare.com. And uh, I do telemedicine um, and consultation. And then I see patients in the clinic as well in Los Angeles. And um, uh, and then we have our organization, sapien.org. It's kind of a mixed bag of things that I'm working on and Brian's working on. Um, but that's a great organization support, supporting Brian. And then the last thing is my podcast, Sapien Podcast. Haven't done a bunch of recent episodes, but very proud of all the episodes we've done. And we have some really great ones. Um, and so uh, that's a great way to kind of learn more about at least what I'm promoting. Well, thank you so much, brother. Really been a pleasure to have you on. And, and yeah, I hope to get you on again soon to talk more about death. <laughs> thank you so much. Anytime. If people want to hear it, I'm happy to talk about it. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Dr. Gary Schliffer for coming on the podcast. Be sure to let me know if you want him back on to talk about death. I found his not breadth and depth of knowledge, his sensitivity, his authenticity really inspiring. And I would love to have him back on. But if he's right, then I don't know, maybe like three people are listening to this now after, the, after that episode. <laughs> so let me know. I'd love to hear. Uh, you can message me on Instagram or Telegram to share feedback, thoughts and more. So just visit the show notes alreadyfree.me forward slash 018. That's where you also find everything else we discussed as well as links to Dr. Gary Schleffer and his work, his websites, his Instagram, all those wonderful things. See you next week, lovely listener. Take a deep breath. Let it go. Well done. You are already free. <laughs> <laughs>